Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We're speaking on Thursday, January 19th, 2023. It is the day after the New York State Senate Judiciary Committee voted down the nomination of Justice Hector LaSalle to become the next chief judge of New York, which would mean presiding over the state's highest court, the Court of Appeals, and also running the state's unified court system. It was a very interesting hearing with Justice LaSalle taking several hours of questions from the members of the State Senate Judiciary Committee and ultimately resulted in a vote where he was not advanced to the full Senate. There is some controversy over whether uh, this nomination will continue in any way, shape or form. The state Senate, led by Majority Leader Andrew Stewart-Cousins, who was recently on the show, in case you missed that discussion, you should find it and give a listen after this one, um, because she previewed that this nomination was likely to fail in, in the state Senate. Um, but the governor uh, disagrees with the majority leader in thinking that the uh, the constitution of the state requires a full vote by the state Senate. Majority Leader Stuart Cousins believes this is the end of the road for Justice LaSalle's nomination and that the process should start again, where the governor will need to choose a new nominee to put before the state Senate for advice and consent. So we will see what happens on that front, the governor appears to be, based on some reporting, uh, considering legal action. Uh, she issued a statement saying that she thought the process was unfair and that she believes that LaSalle's nomination needs to go before the full state Senate, but did not outline any additional action she plans to take in that statement. So joining me today to discuss that and much more about the state legislative and budget session that has just begun in Albany and will result in a state budget that is due by April 1st, but sometimes comes a little bit after, as we know. Uh, joining me today is State Senator Jessica Ramos, who represents the 13th State Senate District of New York based in Queens, including the neighborhoods of Jackson Heights, Corona, East Elmhurst, Elmhurst, and a sliver of Rigo Park. Senator Ramos, returning to the show, we're always appreciative of her time. She chairs the state Senate's Labor Committee, and she was a recent addition to the Judiciary Committee and cast a vote against advancing Justice LaSalle to the full state Senate. So we're going to talk about that decision, what comes next, and a whole bunch of other issues, including Senator Ramos's efforts around raising the minimum wage in New York and more. State Senator Jessica Ramos joins me in just one moment. Very briefly, before we bring on Senator Ramos, if you've missed any recent episodes of the show, you can find them all at Max Politics, wherever you listen to podcasts, or we have them all at the Gotham Gazette website. As I mentioned, recent guests include State Senate Majority Leader Andre Stewart-Cousins. We had a very interesting conversation about this LaSalle nomination and a variety of other issues. Also, in recent weeks and months, I've spoken with the borough presidents of both Brooklyn and Queens, Antonio Reynoso and Donovan Richards. Two very interesting conversations there and a bunch of other great guests. Again, find any or all of those at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts or the Gotham Gazette website and at GothamGazette.com. You can, of course, also find all of our recent reporting on New York State and city government and politics. A lot there to read up on. All right. State Senator Jessica Ramos represents the 13th District in Queens, is chair of the State Senate Labor Committee and is a member of the State Senate Judiciary Committee. Just coming off of this nomination hearing of Justice Hector LaSalle to be the next chief judge of New York. Senator Ramos, thank you for joining me. How are you? Buenos dias, Ben. I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm happy to be back. So thank you for, for joining me again. Um, wanted to catch up with you about priorities for the year. But of course, now also uh, top of the agenda here is this vacancy for chief judge of the New York Court of Appeals and the court system of New York. So yesterday's hearing was really interesting on a number of fronts. I thought the back and forth between state senators and Justice LaSalle was was very substantive, very interesting. Um, uh, the type of hearing that uh, I think uh, just about anybody would agree is good 
for um, you know, vetting nominations of such power. Um, what uh, explain a little bit about why you ultimately decided to to vote against advancing Justice LaSalle? What were the key pieces of your rationale um, for opposing moving his nomination forward? Well, Ben, um, I decided to vote against the governor's nomination because we're looking to improve our state court system, particularly in light of the disaster that has been the federal Supreme Court, right? And we here in New York want to make sure that we're doing everything that's possible to protect workers, to protect women, to protect um, the average New Yorker. Um, and so, uh, in my capacity as labor chair, of course, that has been the focus of my work in the state Senate for the past few years. Um, I questioned uh, Judge LaSalle on Cablevision, on other cases like Campanelli, um, where uh, his answers were unsatisfactory to my questions. Um, it was clear in the complaint for Cablevision, for example, that the union officials were engaging in union activity. And therefore, in my opinion, and this is where Judge Lasalle and I disagree, they should not be held liable in their personal capacity for any defamation of a big corporation like Cablevision. And that's really important because we're talking about middle-class New Yorkers engaging in union activity, their first right amendment, which should be protected. Um, and especially when it is laid out in the initial complaint in that case in that way. Um, so to me, it wasn't, I never called Judge LaSalle anti-union. I heard that a lot from the left. Um, this was not a case where he prevented anyone from organizing. That wasn't the question. What, what it was here about was uh, really respecting union activity and ensuring that um that that you know union officials uh are are working in their union capacity and they were furthermore right now the other six justices um on our highest court also bring prosecutorial experience and i do believe that while you know racial and ethnic diversity is really important and we i'm always fighting to have more latinos have more asian people at on the bench at different levels and i've helped many folks uh you know on that journey um we want to make sure that there is balance in with respect to uh experience as well so i don't think that there's any fault in wanting a public defender a former public defender or someone who also has judicial experience um to come to the bench and hopefully provide uh, a much more uh, accurate reflection of the wider New Yorker's view of the law and how it should be applied. We're talking about the person who would be in charge of administering the courts um, and knowing the crisis going on at Rikers, the thousands of people who are still waiting uh, for trial. Um, you know, we want to make sure that that the person is qualified to do just that. And, and so my differences with Judge LaSalle were, were much more uh, philosophical and in and, and, and the way we see the labor law. I mean, I'm not a lawyer. I did work at a law firm for seven years. It was actually the first job I ever had right here in Jackson Heights. But I do happen to write laws for a living and have read labor law uh, extensively for many, many years. I had a whole career in the labor movement before running for office, before working in a mayoral administration. Um, and so I, I, we, I believe we gave him a fair hearing, a respectful hearing. I had already read the cases many, many weeks ago. Uh, which is why I knew how I was going to vote and why I knew what questions I was going to ask of uh, Judge LaSalle. Um, and, um, and 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 that's how we we came out with this outcome. So um, there were a number of cases that you and other senators raised with Judge LaSalle about um, his record, opinions that he joined, opinions, um, maybe one or two that that he authored, but often opinions that he was he was joining. And um, and as you say, there were um, yourself and, and a number of others who had either said ahead of time they expected to, uh, you know, that they were skeptical of this nomination or they expected to oppose it. 
Say a little bit about making that determination that you just mentioned ahead of time. The governor uh, reacted to the Judiciary Committee's rejection of LaSalle by saying this was an unfair process because people had made up their minds ahead of time. Um, Say a little bit about making that decision ahead of time and why not go into the hearing with more of an open mind, wanting to hear directly from him. And if there was anything that he he could have said, even about this this specific case you mentioned, the Cablevision case um, related to union activity, um, that could have changed your mind. Say a little bit about sort of your decision making process and 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 the value of the hearing or or lack of value in the hearing with with the judge. Well, Ben, I, I would have liked to hear you know why it was that he chose not to join. Uh, the dissent in that particular cable vision case. Um, he had the option to do that and he did not. Um, and so that that was, you know, what was troubling to me. Um, and, and like I said, you know, in the lead up to this, I I had requested from Majority Leader Andrea Stewart Cousins to join the Judicial uh, Committee uh, very many months ago um, as required. And um, we prepared once we heard who the nominee was. Uh, We did our due diligence. I'm actually very proud of uh, my Democratic colleagues um, for doing our homework. We were prepared. We asked questions. uh, We raised our concerns. But look, just in the same way that it has played out in the federal at the federal level, when we've seen, you know, uh, Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, for example, Democrats knew ahead of time that they were going to oppose this that particular nominee. And Judge LaSalle is not an extreme right wing person at all. Um, he expressed that he is for a woman's right to choose. And so sometimes when it's not so cut and dry, I think that people might expect us to simply be a rubber stamp. But the stakes are just too high right now, um, you know, for, for me to feel like, well, it's OK. Okay, if, he, if, if the judge is wishy-washy on this one issue or on the other, absolutely not. And look, I can't. I, I also can't ignore the fact that my neighbors sent me to the New York State Senate because my predecessor had voted for and supported a Republican majority in the Senate. I can't feel comfortable. I'm not able to sleep at night knowing that I would vote for a judge with Republicans uh, who have challenged uh, the, you know, a lot of the human rights uh, law and, and 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 new initiatives that we have written that we have championed in the Senate, there there is no world where Andrew Lanza and I or Senator Palumbo and I, uh, you know, feel that the same that the same candidate is is the ideal chief judge. That's Republican state senators from Staten Island and Long Island. Um, so is it is it generally, would you capture it for people to generally say that you feel, you and, and a number of colleagues felt that Judge LaSalle's record is too conservative? Is that, yes. I mean, is that the simplest way to put it, that that overall when you assess his record, the the ways that he joined, especially a particular handful of cases, uh, that that generally speaking, you saw him as as too conservative, and that in a number of these instances, as you mentioned, there were dissents from the left of the of the opinion of the decision that he he joined or wrote. That, in your mind, anyone coming before you should have been part of of the dissent. Or obviously, if enough people had moved to that opinion, uh, it wouldn't have been the dissent. But. But is that is that the general just the way to capture? Look, everybody knows I love my unions. I love my unions equally because I'm sure they're listening. But are the public sector unions who came out in support of Justice LaSalle's nomination do negotiate their contracts with the state, uh, which means that there's an interest there. But it also means that they can't be sued or won't be sued by their employer. Right. Whereas the private sector unions do have a genuine fear 
for what that decision can mean for their lives. We're not talking about multimillionaires. We're talking about middle-class people engaging in union activity. And that cable vision uh, case is very clear in the complaint where it says that they were engaging in union activity. I read it. Um, I now read he, part now of the paragraph the government, during the hearing to the yeah. to, to the judge to see how he'd react, and you know, unfortunately, I, I I don't feel that that he opined in the correct way. He came in talking about that decision and others mostly um, as procedural matters, uh, and that overall his record is as a, a, a judge committed to a pretty strong set of what, you know, might be called uh, progressive liberal values. He didn't obviously put it that way, but he tried to really assure yourself and other senators that, um, you know, as you said, he, he in his opening statement, he, he declared that personally he believes in a woman's right to make her own reproductive decisions. Uh, in a number of other, other instances, he put forward pretty stark value statements that you don't often hear from a judge in a hearing, or at least we're not used to hearing, I guess, at, you know, at the Supreme Court level of the United States. But he tried to make very clear uh, some of where he stands and talked about these decisions as more procedural matters where or almost he said he did he 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 didn't he didn't think they were really open to that much interpretation, even though he acknowledged in some cases that there were people who obviously dissented that have a, had a different interpretation. It, it, it's your stance that that he had the wrong legal framework when he viewed some of these things as simple procedural matters that he couldn't really infuse more uh, of his values into. That's correct. So, so yesterday when we were discussing the Cablevision case, Judge LaSalle alleged that in the complaint, you know, everything that's in the complaint, it has to be assumed true. Uh, in order to move forward procedurally in that particular type of case, okay? What I was saying is that right in the complaint, in what you have to accept as as alleged facts, right? It it says that the it was union activity where the supposed defamation took place by these union officials of Cablevision's service, of which we all, every New Yorker is critical of, right? So, so to me, so to me, you know, if the information is there, I, I don't, I don't think that you can say that it's a procedural thing, um, especially when there was someone who dissented and you had the option to join them. Um, so it's, it's, yeah. What What do you make of? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that one was very interesting because he acknowledged that the case involved a union teletown hall, and then said that you know he still had to take it as fact in the complaint that it wasn't the complaint. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is my thing, and why I read it, and why I read it in my follow up. Mm-hmm. I brought up the complaint, and I read that clause. I know this is a I know this is a hard hard one to think about, but if he had said, you know what, I've I've thought a lot about it since then. Uh, You know, that case was 2015. Uh, You know, there are other cases being raised that are also several years ago. If he had come into this hearing and talked about having rethought one or two of these cases, including that one, do you think you might have viewed him differently? Or is that the type of thing where you would have viewed that sort of cynically that he was coming in to say that, but his record really showed what kind of jurist he's been? Do you think you could have said anything to change your mind? I would have appreciated that acknowledgement, but ultimately the damage is done, right? And 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 you know, value statements are important as an elected official. I very often make value statements, but ultimately the proof is in the in the pudding, right? The proof is in the bills that I pass. The proof is in the decisions that he writes and that he joins. Um, those are the loudest value statements that we make um, in 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 our professional lives. So those were the ones that I took into account. Those are the ones that my team and I studied uh, very diligently in the lead up to this and why I felt uh, that I I knew how I would be voting um, when the time came and, you know, what questions I would ask for clarity. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, you know, we we were very respectful and cordial of the judge and his experience. I don't think that should be diminished in any way. 
you you noted that some people have called him anti-union. There's been people who've uh, called him anti-choice for one of the other decisions that he was involved with um, related to the uh, at the time, the New York Attorney General's office uh, looking into one of these so-called crisis pregnancy centers that are, you know, anti-abortion uh, efforts. Um that that these individual cases and his ruling on certain procedural matters or his joining of certain opinions, you know, individual cases that made him anti, you know, anti-union or anti-woman or anti-choice. Do you feel like all of the, those characteristics um, were fair? And and did the way that the, a lot of that sort of larger discussion critical of him leading up to this hearing, do you think it sort of unfairly kind of, you know, cast the, uh, you know, cast the result ahead of time in a way that that he didn't actually get a a fair hearing where he could explain some of these decisions that were the most controversial ones. You know, some of these characterizations, as you just got at, um, you know, that he was being called anti-union for this singular decision. Again, I, I understand one one decision can make a big difference, but um, you know, that some of these instances that these are mischaracterizations of of his overall record, his overall viewpoint. Do you think that that a lot of this rhetoric got got out too far ahead of of the hearing? I very often believe that rhetoric gets out way too far. And I don't think that Justice LaSalle is anti-union. The case that I uh, questioned the judge on didn't have to do with unionization directly. He wasn't preventing workers at a workplace from organizing. This was specific to the relationship between a company, an employer, in this case, a multinational, a huge corporation, right? Multi-million million dollar corporation and the uh, workers and their representatives and how they were organizing uh, at a teletown hall way, where they were talking about the quality of the service that is provided by Cablevision. So they're talking about the company at a union town hall. That conversation was held by union officials in their professional capacity. This means that the corporation should not be able to sue the union officials on a personal level, putting them and their families in danger of maybe losing their house or, you know, their 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 financial stability. And this is very often a tactic that is used by big corporations and powerful employers to squash union activity in that way. So in that's why it's a conservative decision. Um, and that being said, I, I think that, you know, the people, right, um, our constituents in, especially here in New York City, who I think were the loudest opposers of, of, of the nominee, did what they do best. They went, they rallied, they organized, they, you know, did their own homework. They pressured their elected officials into doing what, what they believed to be correct. Um, and that is democracy. Yeah. And sometimes um, that that political rhetoric gets, you know, is, is paints and paints in very stark colors. Um, say a little bit about. So 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 let me hear your reaction to this. My, my sense of things um, from talking to people and then, of course, just listening to what's been said publicly by the governor and others is that one of the biggest reasons the governor had made this nomination was in response to very real criticism about a lack of Latino representation at the highest levels of both the New York State Democratic Party and and politics on the politics side, and more importantly here in New York State government. And that when she got the list from the Committee on Judicial Nominations that she has to choose from, uh, that 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 is where she saw an opportunity to appoint a highly qualified Latino judge to this position of chief judge, and that she was in part looking to nominate someone with strong, you know, credentials and you know, highly rated by bar associations and so forth, 
and and to address this um, pretty widely seen glaring need for better representation at the highest levels of state government. And that it wasn't, from what I can tell, it wasn't about some, um, you know, some major ideological alliance here, but it was much more that and the question of who she had to choose from. Say a little bit about what you make of um, the process and the governor's choices that she had in front of her and how it tied in with this question of Latino leadership at the highest levels of state government and how you as a Latina leader in state government and New York state politics have wrestled with these with these questions. Ben, a big reason why I requested to join the judicial uh, the Judiciary Committee is because I have tried my hardest to play a role in the wider discussion of judicial diversity. Um, I have helped um, folks on their journey to uh, to become a judge, uh, both appointed and elected. And I, you know, don't believe that it should be a Latino at all costs or a Latino at any cost. Um, I think that given the precarious moment where we are, particularly in the conversation with the Supreme Court and our rights as New Yorkers, we want to make sure that we have a court that really reflects uh, what New York, how New Yorkers see the law, interpret the law. And I wanted to see a candidate who who meets those uh, qualifications. Um, you know, I would like to see, for example, the Latina who is uh, who has the longest tenure in the Court of Appeals, who has seniority. Um, the process is one in which a lobbying firm, uh, Greenberg Tarig is was charged or they are counsel to the commission uh, that decides the shortlist for of candidates for this particular position. And it's my understanding that now that the nomination has been lost, they are they should be drawing up a new list. Um, I would love for us to have the uh, the chief judge who is going to steer. Uh, the OCA, right, the Office of Court Administration, and who will work with judges um, in the best possible way. So we're going to continue to help on that search. So um, I think you might be referring to Jenny Rivera, who is on the Court of Appeals, um, is seen as a, a liberal justice, um, seemed to repeatedly um or did repeatedly dissent from majority rulings under the former, the recent chief judge, Janet DeFiori, um, and was left off of the list uh, that Governor Hochul could choose from. Back back to my prior point, I feel like there might have been a very different discussion about the governor's nomination looking for Latino leadership um, if Jenny Rivera had been on that list, is that is that what you're referring to? Is that is that what you want to see if this does indeed move to a next round? Yes, I, I would like to see her or someone like her and her profile be considered for this most important position. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it's your stance and it's the state Senate majority stance at this point that the process restarts. That's correct. Mm-hmm. I think that like the finance committee who is charged with approving uh, or disapproving of governor's nominees for commissions for authorities um, and agencies um, it's up to it was up to the judiciary committee's prerogative whether the nomination would continue or not and you know my understanding is that this may very well end up uh, being discussed, uh, you know, through litigation. And I think that that would be very unfortunate because there's enough going on. And we are in uh, in in uh, ahead of the budget dance. Uh, and that's really where our focus should be right now. I, I think um, Senator Brad Hoyleman, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, a Manhattan Democrat, I think he said uh, earlier on this day, we're talking on WNYC radio to Brian Lair that, you know, a, a lawsuit would be, uh, in his opinion, you know, a pretty a pretty big mistake at this point. Um, but we'll see what the governor decides to do. So um, 
could given the process that unfolded with the list of nominees that that the governor had to choose from you and and uh, a group of 20 senators had, had written a letter last year urging um the the uh you know the 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 committee to put forward a list a diverse list of candidates for the governor to choose from to replace the chief judge you and others really tried to get out ahead of this a bit to not have this type of battle. Um, this obviously did not unfold this way. Is there any way you think that this could have been avoided given the list that the governor got? I mean, was it was it made very clear to her, you think, that there were only certain candidates on that list that Senate Democrats would really be able to get behind? And we've been nothing but transparent throughout this conversation. I think we've been very clear in what we were looking for. We've tried to be as collaborative as possible. No matter what anyone says, there has been no senator who wanted to deny just Judge LaSalle his hearing. Nobody, nobody was trying to cancel the hearing, right? He every every candidate, even if he even if he was a right wing nut deserves a hearing where he or she is held responsible and questioned on, on their past decisions. That is the process. Um, and and I, to me, the vote is then pointless if we are expected to just be a rubber stamp, then why even go through the charade? The whole point is that this committee is trusted to do its due diligence, and I would want it to be respected. Is um do do you at all um sympathize with Governor Hochul in this process, or do you think she just made a, a bad choice because she had her own reasons, but she made a bad choice based on all the signals that state Senate Democrats had been sending to her about where you wanted this nomination to head? I, I, I could understand in in some senses a governor saying, "Well, they're not supposed to sort of tell me who to pick here. They're supposed to then vet that." nominee and you know hold a hearing and and make a decision there there's a bit of a a uh, a dance here around this separation of powers no separation of powers is the foundation of our democracy in this country and in this state i want to say that there is nothing that i want more than to say that be able to say that our first woman governor in the state of New York is or was a resounding success. This is very important to me as a woman who's a New Yorker. Um, I would love to see much more collaboration. We are not the enemy. We are of the same party. We helped the governor get elected. We've done our job. We want to work with you I, I don't understand why the animosity has been created and why picking these fights are necessary this early on, especially as we walk into budget negotiations over the next few weeks and months. Mm -hmm. This is when New Yorkers are expecting us to deliver, uh, to bring home the bacon, right? And, you know, I, I'm worried for the environment that this has been that this has created, you know, do you, and, and, and I don't. And do you foresee there being um, a, a point taken about the the environment between the governor and, and the, the state Senate, especially? And, and and there's perhaps more to discuss on that in a minute. I do want to touch on a couple other topics with you. But um, do you see this winding up in a in a good place if. For example, the Commission on Judicial Nomination comes back with a different list. Someone like a Jenny Rivera is on it, and the governor decides again to uh, have her eye on Latino representation at the highest levels of state government, goes with a more progressive choice that state Senate Democrats especially are supportive of. Do you do you see this potentially winding up in a in a in an actual in a in a place of of some um some real agreement on this? Do you think it can get there? A girl can dream, Ben. That's what I'd like to see. Um you know, I I I'd like to live in a world where, you know, that's possible. Um and and that would be a really pleasant surprise. Do you know of any other names out there besides Rivera? Um, who, who, well, there who... were some. There were some other names on the initial list, along mm -hmm. with Judge LaSalle. 
who are uh, were also, you know, being considered uh, Judge Gluck, Stoughton and, you know, there there are people who are qualified for this position um, who really do reflect uh, much better uh, the the thinking of New Yorkers. Um, that's that's possible. It's why we didn't want to settle. So we will see how this plays out. Um, I think uh, I think yourself and and Senator Hoyleman and Majority Leader Stuart Cousins have tried to um, make clear that that this is not necessarily. And and others uh, that that this is not necessarily a fight that you want to keep having that and and questions around whether the governor will pursue a lawsuit here. Um, so so going back to your point about the atmosphere between the governor and the state senate, especially what happens next year? This 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 will obviously play itself out. How how do you foresee the next steps around? The governor is going to release her executive budget soon. Um, there was a lot in her state of the state agenda, including one of your top priorities, m- multiple of your priorities, but it, one of your very top priorities, which is increasing the minimum wage. Uh, what what's how does how do things move forward now in terms of um, the relationship between the governor and the state Senate uh, Democratic supermajority, especially? Well, as we know, state of the state speeches are very broad strokes, of course, by definition. And like you said, we're waiting for the executive budget, which will actually uh, lay out all of the details of the initiatives that the governor outlined in her speech. So we are on the edge of our seats waiting to see uh, what the full minimum wage proposal is, what the full child care proposal is. These are, of course, two measures that uh, as 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 a mom and as chair of the labor committee, I have championed uh, in my work in the past few years. And we wanna make sure that we're pushing for greater eligibility in childcare. We wanna make sure undocumented children are included, especially now that we have many more given the new asylum seeking families who've arrived to New York state. And, you know, the parents are going to start receiving working papers in a few months. These folks are going to need a safe place to leave their children. And that's really important. And, you know, of course, with the minimum wage, I love that she, uh, you know, adopted the idea, the very progressive idea of tying the minimum wage to inflation because the minimum wage by definition should cover the bare minimum of what's necessary to survive in the state of New York. And that should always keep up with the cost of living. But I want to make sure that we are doing that, that we're pegging it at a living wage. And so this is where just based on the speech without seeing the executive budget, I worry a little bit because I, of course, am proposing something a little different. I would like to bring the minimum wage to $21.25 by 2026 and then peg it to inflation. This is really important because if we don't raise the minimum wage first, then all we're doing is codifying poverty wages and that that can't fly. So your proposal is yearly increases to get to 21.25 an hour by 2026 and then take the inflation uh, indexing from there. That's correct. does this have what kind of support does this have first in your conference? So in our conference, especially after we voted for raises, which, by the way, I'd like to remind folks that we had a deadline and that's why we had to do it before the end of the year last year. Um, but it was a good reminder, I think, for me and my colleagues to know that we weren't the only ones who, you know, need to keep up with the cost of living. Of course, those families who are uh, trying to make ends meet and keep a roof over their heads on $15 an hour in this economy. I have no idea how they do it. It's not fair. They're hard workers. They help huge retail corporations like Amazon and, and Target and all of these companies make ginormous profits, record-breaking corporate profits right now, right? 70 year at a 70-year high. Inflation is at a 40-year high. There is no reason why these employers cannot afford to pay their workers a living wage. And if you're a company, if you're a company who can't afford to do that, well, then you don't have a viable business. 
You cannot, you know, do make a profit off the backs of the workers who are making it possible. What about the concern that amid uh, record inflation, that raising the minimum wage will only serve to accelerate that cycle? I mean, is there is there any way to avoid that in doing this? So higher wages did not cause this inflation. And unfortunately, I don't know about you, I have never seen the rent actually go down. Prices of groceries dramatically decrease. No, people need to be able to have spending power. Foot traffic in my restaurants here in my district is slower right now because folks don't have that much disposable income. And yes, it's after the holidays and January is always a little rough, but you know, usually my restaurants are able to count on folks who order in or, and right now it's just not happening. So this means that the average New Yorker, a worker, needs more money in their pocket. That means that the scales in our economy between employers and employees is tilted in, in, in an unfair way. So what we what we want to do is ensure that the economic recovery that is supposed to happen as we're crawling out of the pandemic really does shift the paradigm that we've learned our lessons after the pandemic and that we start helping workers so that our communities' economies will be strengthened. Well, as far as I can tell, given that the governor put that in her agenda, some some compromise on raising the minimum wage seems seems very likely this session, wouldn't you say? I, I'm very hopeful that we can arrive to an agreement on one that on what that should look like. I am very cautious about codifying poverty wages and making it actually harder for people in the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, that wouldn't be fair. Mm-hmm. Um. We're just in our last few minutes here. Any other top priorities that you want people to know about in terms of either uh, your work chairing the labor committee, the focus you mentioned on uh, child care, families, parents, anything else coming up that we should be aware of, either legislation you might be introducing or hearings you might be having, any other top priorities right now that you want people to know about? Well, I'm reintroducing a few bills. Um, I'm going to stay tackling wage theft, which is, of course, the greatest crime that no that no one ever talks about. The billions of dollars that are uh, stolen from my neighbors and from New Yorkers who work very hard. Um, and of course, uh, I am also introducing new legislation. I'm really excited that I am introducing a new pilot program proposal uh, for uh, universal basic income for pregnant people and mothers uh, to uh, be able to help them during that time. Um, It would serve 15,000 moms in New York State, um, unprecedented and a real investment that can help uh, keep these uh, families safe um, and and on, on a great start for the babies. And say a little bit on um, what what the details of that would look like under the proposal. So our pilot program, I assume, in a in a in a sort of targeted way in a certain geographic location or at a certain income level or or something along those lines. So this would be a, a program that would be around the state. And like I said, we would be reaching 15,000 moms, we calculate that this would cost around $250 million um, for the pilot program, but with the idea that it would actually be saving us money in the long run for services rendered um, or you know the other safety nets that end up reacting to issues of poverty instead of preventing them, which is what this pilot program would do. Interesting. So that's going to be that's going to be introduced soon. That's correct. Okay. Um, let me ask you this: you 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 have a bill to uh, raise taxes. Um, you have uh, a billionaire's tax bill that's part of this invest in our New York uh, package of tax increases and plans for increased spending on a whole host of uh, social services. The governor said in her speech, uh, her state of the state speech, that she does not intend to raise income taxes. State Senate Majority Leader Andrew Stewart-Cousins was asked about that on uh, the Capitol press room, I believe, and said that, well, you know, you heard the governor. She was she was pretty adamant about it. And I was I was a little surprised that uh, the Senate Majority Leader sort of indicated that that wasn't something she she thought was even really up for debate here. 
What's the what's the atmosphere among state Senate Democrats and, and what you're trying to do around this question of of where tax rates stand, especially as you're part of a coalition pushing to raise taxes on the wealthy and you have the governor saying she does not intend on making any income tax increases this year? Well, the wealth the way wealth is being accrued nowadays is a little different than in the past. Right now, what billionaires in New York are doing, like other billionaires, is uh, putting their investments, their money, uh, their assets in um, in stocks and other uh, capital gains. And the fact is that it's a way to get around income tax. Um, and what we want to do is ensure that we are having these billionaires pay their fair share, not allowing them to simply hide the wealth that they're hoarding, but really look at their unrealized capital gains and say, well, you have to pay your fair share because this money is actually going to help us with public transportation, with education, with all of the things that actually help produce better adults and better workers for our economy. So it actually is in your best interest to invest in this way. But ultimately, you know, we have 120 billionaires in New York State and, you know, the cost of a house in New York City right now is well around a million dollars, depending on the borough that you live in. And, you know, for those who are house rich, you know that, you know, you're not rich by any means, but it's still the American dream that we all share, especially my generation. We're having a very tough time with home ownership. And we're never going to be able to 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 reach that American dream with all of these billionaires and big corporations hoarding cash. We need that money to be pumped back into our economy. Um, and this is really the best way to do it. Um, in its first year, we would be raising $27 billion. You know, universal child care alone, providing every single New York State child with high quality child care for free at no cost to their parents directly would actually cost around only $18 billion. Of these twenty-seven oh, billion dollars. Uh huh. Um, interesting. So, so you think there's some wiggle room per se uh, in in what the governor said because she was very focused on income taxes. <laughs> That's correct. And look, I understand where she's coming from. This is an area where we disagree. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she, we're 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 slightly different type of Democrats, sure. if you if you will. Um, and I do worry about the income inequality in this state. I I don't I'm not scared that the rich are going to leave. I am upset that the middle class and working class New Yorkers feel that they have to leave our state to buy a house. That's the problem. Interesting. Well, there's there's a big housing conversation uh, going on that we don't have time to to chat about today. Let me ask you in closing. I wanted to ask you about this um, uh, back in um, the summer last year, I believe it was. You uh, there, there was there was a lot of attention for a very brief period of time where you had some criticism of uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio Cortez about not spending enough time in the district and sort of uh, you know being on the ground and being you know making sure that she was uh, attentive to sort of district needs. What whatever came of that? Did you have a chance ever to connect with her? Uh, you know, ha- have you guys been able to to make some amends there? Did, were you able to hear from her? Has this conversation continued in any way? Um, I know your district changed some. You know, the, her district changed some. But was this anything that you were able to sort of move ahead in any way or get to any common ground on? Well, with everything that we've been through. I want to make sure that my colleagues and I are all hands on. It's all hands on deck. That's 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 what New York is going through right now. That's the leadership that's required. Um, I have not heard from the congresswoman. Um, and I think that it, you know, there are, are many conversations to be had about what's going on in the district. So we will we will see. OK, uh, in in closing, um, the the. Dynamics in Albany, just one last question on that. The the state Senate that you're a part of has had a lot more new members in recent years than the Assembly. Um, the state Senate has often been out ahead of the Assembly on a variety of, of issues. Um, 
you know, things that come to mind are like this Build Public Renewables Act that the state Senate passed, but the assembly didn't. There's been a number of um, uh, the recent reforms that were passed again by the state Senate to the New York City Board of Elections, for example, that passed the state Senate last year, but not the assembly. What's the dynamic there like in terms of the state Senate trying to, um, you know, bring, bring bring the assembly along on some of these issues? Well, we're two distinct uh, bodies within the legislature and uh, with different dynamics. And more often than not, we do agree and sometimes we disagree. That's the case with my sweat bill. I'm constantly very frustrated by that dynamic. Um, You know, the sweat bill is uh, securing wages earned against theft. Um, And it is based on the mechanics lien. And I've been able to pass it in the Senate. Um, and there have been times where it's passed in the assembly and was vetoed by the previous governor. Now we've had a dynamic where the Senate will pass it, but the assembly won't pass it. And it's very frustrating. But, you know, we continue to work with our colleagues to, to get the support that we need to, to, to pass these bills. It's just the nature of, of, of a bicameral structure. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we'll follow up on that and and some of those other bills. I'll put that on the list of things that we're following that uh, have have either passed the state Senate and we're wondering what's happening in the assembly or vice versa. But um, State Senator Jessica Ramos, thank you for the time. Uh, State Senator Jessica Ramos represents the 13th district, which is based in Queens and includes the neighborhoods of Jackson Heights, Corona, East Elmhurst, Elmhurst and a sliver of Rigo Park. She's the chair of the Labor Committee and has a seat on the Judiciary Committee, which, of course, was front and center this week with the nomination of Judge Hector LaSalle to be chief judge of New York. Thank you very much for the time and stay in touch. All right. Thanks for having me, Ben.